0: Good morning. Uh, I'm going to start just a minute early since I've got a few introductory remarks uh, to make. Uh, I'm Mark Ernsthoff. Uh, For those of you that don't know me, I'm the Associate Director for uh, Clinical Research in the Cancer Center. And uh, on behalf of the Cancer Center, I want to welcome David Sola here for uh, presenting the 36th David Kena Memorial Lecture. So this is a lecture series that's been named, it's been endowed, and it's been going on for 36 years. To tell you a little about, about who David Kinger was. Uh, he, uh, he received his undergraduate degree from the University of Michigan, uh, uh, graduating uh, summa cum laude. He received his MD degree then from Wayne State, and then uh, came to Dartmouth to do a surgical uh, internship uh, here at then the Mary Hitchcock Memorial Hospital. Uh, unfortunately, in, in uh, that next year, he was diagnosed with chronic neurological leukemia a disease that today we can treat pretty effectively. Uh, Unfortunately, back in the 1970s, it wasn't something that could be treated. He was planning an ophthalmology uh, residency and had been already accepted at the Mayo Clinic uh, for that. Uh, But before starting it, he passed away in 1974. Uh, His family uh, uh, chose to endow a, a lectureship which uh, started in, uh, in 1974. Uh, and I'll give you some of the list of individuals that have been here, because it really is an outstanding uh, group of investigators and colleagues in the cancer world that have participated in the Tanner lecture. And we will continue that uh, tradition today. Uh, Margie Long, his wife, and, and her family said their regrets. They had an unfortunate death in the family, they couldn't uh, attend. They usually do attend uh, this lecture every year. So this is a list of some of the representatives of uh, 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 individuals that have given the cancer Lecture. Uh, and as you can see, I, I believe the first one was by Judith Fulton. Uh, and uh, this is an outstanding list of e- investigators and really uh, the, the uh, fathers and mothers of our uh, cancer programs around the country. And it's really uh, a pleasure today uh, to introduce David Solon, uh, a memorial, uh, he received his BA e. degree from the University of Pennsylvania, as well as his medical degree. Uh, did his residency out in St. Louis, uh, and then a fellowship at Memorial, uh, in which is where he has stayed. Uh, since that, he is currently the director of developmental therapeutics and the director of the Center of Molecular Oncology. It was named Jeffrey Dean <laughs> Chair. I won't uh, bore you Uh, with his numerous publications, many awards, uh, he really has uh, uh, elevated to uh, an outstanding investigator and a a true leader in molecular oncology and it really is a great pleasure to have you here today.
1: Please welcome him. Okay. Thank you.
0: Jerry, when I need to, I don't want to get my slides off, Uh, slides on. I
1: don't. Yes,
0: Sorry, it's
1: okay.
0: why I'm sorry,
1: I'm sure we'll overcome this. Yeah.
0: His slides are here.
1: And they're on the. They're on the computer.
0: Yeah, yeah. Before we get started, uh, I've been reminded that I always forget to, to today, welcome everybody off-site. Uh, and also to that, uh, this uh, lecture has been reviewed by Alan Hartford, the course director for CME, uh, who reports that his relationship with industry has been resolved by validating the content of his presentation through peer review. He does intend to discuss off-label or investigation the use of products. Uh, and he's not receiving any direct payments from commercial payments.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: now my fiduciary responsibilities.
1: <laughs> okay, well, thanks for the uh, introduction. Uh, it looks like I got a microphone so I can walk around here. Um, okay. Okay. Um, so I've kind of renamed this lecture The Power of One, which will become very obvious um, as I go through the talk. And, I'm just gonna give a little bit of a a history of really what my lab's been doing over the past few years and then really focus on a lot of the clinical initiatives that we've started, really uh, focused around um, tumor profiling and then using that information prospectively to enroll patients onto clinical studies. So here's my disclosure statement as you uh, heard about. So what does my lab do? My lab really focuses around trying to accelerate drug discovery for patients with oncology, and it's a pretty simple um, philosophy that we we follow, which is really to try to define targets. Um, These are usually things that are mutated or abnormal in the tumor, things that are making the cancer grow. We then try to identify drugs that inhibit those targets, and then really the challenge, and what I'm really going to talk about um, for essentially the entire talk today, um, and what we really are working on achieving in the clinic is to really identify patients who have alterations in particular drug targets so that we can give them a particular drug. So that's really been the main challenge. We've identified a lot of targets. We have a lot of drugs. Um, can we match up um, the correct patients? And so how do we just find these targets to start with? And there's really two main approaches. The one that, that people are probably the most familiar with um, is called a G to P approach. It's, it's the genotype to phenotype approach. And, and what we do here is we usually retrospectively um, sequence or profile a large number of tumors, try to find alterations that are recurrently mutated or, or abnormal um, within those tumors, validate those um, within the laboratory, and then try to prospectively develop a drug that inhibits that target. And this paradigm has had a number of successes, for example, with BRAF, which I'll mention briefly, um, which was I was uh, very involved with, as well as things like kit mutations um, and ALK fusions. And, Really, it was the BRAF um, story that that changed my career. I had been working on Hsp90 um, inhibitors in in Neil Rosen's lab. When this paper came out um, in the summer of 2002, showing that BRAF was mutated um, in about 8% of all cancer samples. And it was a pretty simple project that was done um, and led at the Sanger Institute. And it was really a predecessor um, to our current TCGA-like efforts. And really, all they did was they took about 1,000 cancer samples, some were cell lines, some were tumors, and just sequenced every gene within the MAP kinase pathway. And it was a real low-risk project, because they knew they would find a number of KRAS mutations. Those had already been well-described. And if anything, they would report the frequency of those um, with better um, uh, uh, accuracy than had been uh, previously reported. Um, But unbeknownst to anyone, BRAF actually turned out to be the the interesting finding. It turned out to be mutated in about 8% of all cancers, about 50% of melanomas about a third of thyroid cancers, and then rare in in other cancer types, about 10% of colon, 1% of lung cancers. And these mutations all clustered within the kinase domain, and if you generated constructs of these mutations, they were transforming in preclinical models. You can actually make genetically engineered mouse models now that express mutated forms of BRAF and get melanoma. Um, And so, essentially, I, I looked at this paper um, and this was in 2002. I was already actually a junior faculty member at the time, um, but was still working in Neil's lab, trying to get my own independent um, research career started. And essentially went into Neil's office and said, you know, I want to work on this, um, because this just seemed like something that would work. If we had the right drug and could find these BRAF mutant, mutant patients, um, this seemed like something that would be similar to the imatinib experience um, with CML, um, which which had just really been successful a few years prior. Um, So I wanted to get involved with this, and Neil pretty much, um, not really the most organized guy, very smart guy, um, but pretty much said, sure, you can work on that. So I started working on BRAF. Um, And the first experiment we did was a pretty uh, simple experiment. Um, We took a, a panel of cell lines and profiled them for BRAF and RAS, and today that would be fairly trivial, but back in in 2002, actually sequencing these tumors, even for just a couple genes, um, was somewhat complicated. And then really asked the question, if we had had an inhibitor of the pathway, and what we had was a good inhibitor of MEK, we really didn't have a good inhibitor of RAF at the time, would cells that were BRAF mutant be preferentially dependent upon the pathway? And it wasn't really obvious um, uh, beforehand, because if you drew this pathway as a linear pathway, where an RTK activates RAS, which activates RAF, which activates MEK. MEK is downstream from all of these alterations. And thus, uh, why, you know, maybe they'd all be sensitive um, to a MEC inhibitor. But it was very clear early on that if you had a BRAF mutant tumor, it was highly addicted to this pathway, that RAS mutant tumors were variably sensitive to MEK or downstream inhibition. And that cells that had EGFR mutations or HER2 amplifications were, as a rule, resistant to MEK inhibitors. And and it was actually this part that was controversial. Um, People thought all these cells would be sensitive to MEK inhibition as really the common downstream effector that was driving um, cell proliferation. But that turned out to to not be the case and gave us confidence that we could move this into the the clinic um, and see activity. And actually, it took a while. Probably more than anything because Pfizer initially and then AstraZeneca later refused to do clinical trials where we only put patients with BRAF mutations onto the clinical studies. They wanted to put everyone on the study and then maybe retrospectively try to analyze um, who would respond and it wasn't until we got RAF inhibitors later on that we did those selective studies and only recently has a MEK inhibitor been approved um, in patients with BRAF mutant melanoma by the FDA. Um, But this was the, the early animal data essentially showing that if you inhibited MEC here, this was a uh, BT474 HER2 amplified cell. You inhibited the pathway, but you didn't inhibit downstream um, things like cyclin D1, um, or activate or in- increase expression of P27. But in a BRAF mutant tumor, you inhibited ERK, down-regulated cyclin D1, upregulated P27, and then blocked these cells in G1. And that's why we saw activity in, in melanoma cells that had BRAF mutation, but no such activity in HER2-driven cells, even though both of them had similar levels of activation of the ERK pathway. And then this ultimately translated into, I'm sure people have heard the stories, into pretty dramatic responses with the RAF inhibitors and also with some of the MEK inhibitors in patients. It's just showing a PET scan pre and post treatment CAT scan showing similar um, activity, and then a Meyer showing a prolongation in survival. So this is really one methodology that we're using right now to identify these drug targets. Um, these, these type of studies have now you know expanded into international consortium um, like the TCGA. But if you're running your own independent research lab, you know it's hard to compete with the TCGA. That's about 300 investigators focused on a, si- a single disease. Um, with essentially an unlimited amount of money. How can you make an impact um, with a smaller operation? And so we had the idea of doing really the opposite of what the TCGA is doing, and really taking the phenotype to genotype approach. And this is really taking patients who responded to a drug, but you didn't know the mechanism uh, uh, that, that, that underlied that sensitivity, and retrospectively figuring that out and seeing if you could then prospectively identify similar patients like that. And really the inspiration um, for this work um, was really this clinical trial. Um, I do both see patients and run this research lab, and I think that, um, that foot in the, in the clinical door gives me the opportunity to, to see questions um, make me aware of those questions and then, and then bring those in, into the lab. And so um, this was trial 08123, it means it was the 123rd study opened at Memorial in, in 2008. It was a very simple phase two study in patients with bladder cancer um, where we gave Everolimus, which is an mTOR inhibitor, um, just as a single agent orally once a day Um, to patients and really ask the question how many of them responded and and for what duration. And as with every other clinical trial that we've done in bladder cancer in the last 30 years, this was a negative study. Um, But despite the fact that it was a negative study, and actually we set the bar incredibly low. uh, All we needed for this study to be positive was for two thirds of the patients to be progression free at two months, um, which is when they got their first CT scan. We actually didn't even achieve that bar. Um, we didn't even get that good. Um, So it was a negative study, the drug was essentially killed by Novartis um, in terms of further development um, in this disease, but we did have some activity on the study. Um, We actually had two patients who achieved resist level responses, and we had one patient who's now a complete response, four plus years and ongoing. So at least for that one patient, this really was the right drug. Maybe it wasn't the right drug for any of the other patients onto the study, but um, for this one was. And actually, very notably, just to give a little anecdote, um, this patient's son, uh, and she would come in from New Jersey for the study, um, was a community medical oncologist, and um, came in with her mom one day after she had been on the study for about a year, and you know told Dean Majorin, who was the treating physician, you know I got to put all my patients with bladder cancer on Everolimus. This stuff is great, and, and unfortunately, we had to tell you know tell them that you know your mom's really the only one who's who's really done well. Um, so probably not not a great idea. But here's her story. She actually presented in the summer of. 2009, she had metastatic disease to lymph nodes at the time of presentation. Standard of care in that setting is to give them chemotherapy, try to shrink the disease down, and then take those patients to cystectomy, which they did um, in the fall of 2009. But unfortunately, by January 2010, she had developed recurrent uh, bulky disease in the retroperitoneum. She was then enrolled on this uh, single agent Everolimus study. Um, No profiling was done um, pre-treatment. And by April of 2010, she had a near complete response. By July 2010, a complete response. July 2011, complete response. I could keep putting the slides on. Um, She was most recently seen in January of 2014. Still is in a complete response and still remains on Everolimus which she takes every day. She's actually asked us a couple times, you know, do do we think she can stop this drug? And we've kind of been like, I don't know. Um, You know, I would probably just keep taking it. But she has, having a little bit of chronic toxicity, um, but otherwise is doing well. So again, why was this patient unique? Um, I was fortunate in that I had a clinical fellow join my lab at at that time, and really put him on this project, you know, try to figure out what was it about this patient um, that made them so sensitive um, to Everolimus. You know, our initial approach was a candidate approach. We we did a sequenome based assay looking for hotspot mutations like PI3 kinase mutations, Um, wild type. We actually did a race CGH looking for copy number aberrations, no go, um, really nothing unusual. Sequenced 15 genes um, by Sanger, entire coding sequences, found nothing um, of note. And at that time, we had been throwing around the idea of starting to do whole genome sequencing using newer next gen. Um, technology, and I I put this patient up as maybe the the first case because not only would we prove our ability to do next-gen sequencing, but maybe we'd actually figure out what the cause of this patient's unique response was. So we went ahead and we sequenced her whole genome. It was actually the first whole genome sequence we had done at Memorial, Um, and she has a complicated genome. She has, in fact, um, 17,000 somatic mutations that are in her tumor that are not in her normal very small number of translocations and copy number aberrations. But it's a real testament to what we know about both tumor genomes and normal genomes that we're able to very quickly bioinformatically map all of these mutations to the, you know, the normal human genome, figure out which ones are in putative coding regions, which ones potentially cause protein changes, um, and which ones are probably the likely explanation for, the, for this patient's sensitivity. So in total, she had about 140 um, coding mutations if you have just done whole exome. Um, that's what you would have picked up. But two really jumped out at us very quickly. One is that she had a two base pair deletion in the TSC1 gene, and she also had a nonsense mutation um, in NF2, and so why are these interesting? Um, Because loss of both of these proteins leads to activation of TORC1, which is the direct target of of this drug. So again, this is not necessarily rocket science. If you know the genetics um, beforehand, This woman had mutations that activate the target of this drug. Maybe not surprisingly, she responded um, to it, whereas other patients um, did not. And actually, at at the same time, we were finishing up the the whole genome analysis. This paper came out, and this was a study published in the New England Journal of Everolimus in patients with uh, what are called SEGA tumors. These are a type of astrocytoma that patients with tuberous sclerosis get, patients with germline alterations um, in the TSC1 or TSC2 genes. And on this trial uh, of SEGA tumors, um, 100% of these patients respond to Everolimus. And not only do they all respond, they respond durably. So that out through two years on this study, there had only been a single patient who had progressed um, on the study who had responded. Um, So essentially, our patient, um, had the same mutation, in this case somatically, that these patients have um, a germline uh, copy uh, mutated and probably loss of heterozygosity in the tumor. And thus maybe not surprising that our patient responded like these patients um, do with, with these SEGA tumors. This is just some preclinical data um, looking at NF2, um, showing that, that loss of NF2, this is mostly in mesothelioma where that, those mutations are most common, and NF2 codes for a protein called Merlin That loss of Merlin leads to activation of the AKT and and S6 kinase uh, and mTOR pathways, and that cells with loss of NF2 are selectively sensitive to mTOR inhibition. So again, our patient had both of these mutations, both converging um, upon the, the, the target of this drug. I would point out that we actually were intelligent enough to think about TSC1 and TSC2 Um, in in the candidate approach. We actually had sequenced this patient by Sanger, Um, but really one of the downsides of Sanger sequencing in older methodologies was that they were very, uh, you know, uh, Uh, essentially inaccurate in picking up these type of uh, uh, insertions and deletions. And so here is essentially the primary data from the whole genome analysis. There was only actually 10 reads with the mutation. We weren't doing very deep sequencing. This was back back three years ago. Um, So only had 10 reads that were positive. But they're very easy to see. You don't have to be a geneticist to see that that, that these 10 uh, deletion Deletions sort of pop out on the IGV view. Here's the normal um, reads. But on the, uh, on the Sanger sequencing, what you have is, is two, a n- nice normal Sanger sequencing trace going along. I'm not sure how well you can see this. You then get deletion of these two base pairs, and then have the normal and the overlying traces going over each other. And it just looks like noise, and you really can't sort it out. So we, we've essentially been underestimating the frequency of these type of insertions and deletions in tumor suppressors. And that's really been one of the big findings of the TCGA, the things like NF1, and TSC1 and P10 um, are much more frequent um, in cancers than we thought they were um, beforehand. We actually were able to go back. We were fortunate at the time that Mike Berger joined uh, Memorial and brought with him some technology that he had developed at the Broad um, to do a capture-based assay, which I'll talk to you about a little bit later. And we're able to get some samples from other patients on the study um, and analyze them as well. And what was notable was that even the patients who had minor responses to Everolimus um, on this study Um, had TSC1 mutations, and so there was a very strong correlation with having a TSC1 mutation and having any response to this drug, but notably, they all didn't have complete responses or durable responses, Um, and the co-mutation patterns were different among these patients, so in our index case, the patient had a TSC1 mutation in NF2, again, both of those activate one drug target, in this case, uh, TORC1, whereas, for example, this patient here has a TSC1 mutation but also has a commutation of FGFR3, as does this patient here. And we're finding that in bladder cancer, about 40% of the patients who have TSC1 mutations have commutations in FGFR3. And one could imagine that these FGFR3 mutations are diminishing addiction to mTORC1, and that these patients really need combination therapies. And it's possible that we could do such a combination and turn this patient or this patient into one of these complete responding patients. And that's something we want to study um, going forward in the future. So that was the first example. Um, We've since uh, applied this to other cases, and um, in essentially every case, we've been able to solve um, what the underlying sensitivity is. I'll just mention two more. Um, This is a patient with ovarian cancer, uh, low malignant potential type, Um, and these patients obviously don't have as aggressive disease as patients with high grade um, serious ovarian cancer, but many of them develop continually recurrent disease, they end up getting multiple abdominal surgeries. Eventually, uh, it becomes inoperable. Um, and they do uh, often die of this um, disease. So this was a woman who went on a GOG study, this GOG-239 at Sloan-Kettering, um, of cellumetinib, which is the MEK inhibitor. So this was a very uh, interesting case to me. Um, and this is back in 2009. Had a, her biggest mass was this four-centimeter tumor. Went ahead and went on the study, and has had a complete response, and still, as of today, remains on this drug um, in a complete response. Um, We had looked retrospectively, um, and actually the basis for doing this study um, was that BRAF is mutating about a third of these ovarian tumors, Um, but when we looked retrospectively at BRAF mutations, at least at our our series at Sloan Kettering, um, every single patient who had a BRAF mutation um, was still alive and doing well. So they were either cured with the surgery at such slowly progressive disease that they did not die of their disease, The patients that died were um, more more commonly either KRAS mutant patients or patients that were wild type for both KRAS and and, and BRAF. And actually, if you read the paper from the GOG study, this is actually published, the the GOG paper, not the the retrospective analysis of the tumor genetics. Um, But they did look for BRAF and KRAS here. and, And if you read the paper, it says there's no correlation between BRAF mutation status and response to the drug. The problem with that statement is there was no one on the study with a BRAF mutation, and so of course there was no correlation. Those patients don't recur, they don't end up in the medical oncology clinic, they don't get the drug. And so what does this patient have? Well again, it's not rocket science if you know the answer, it's pretty obvious once you know the answer. It turns out the patient has a mutation in MEC one okay, which is, uh, the target of the drug, um, and that this mutation is just very difficult to pick up by older methodologies. Turns out that they have a 15 base pair deletion, which truncates five amino acids um, from the protein, and if you make this um, mec one deletion, um, it's constitutively active, and this patient has a BRAF, KRAS wild type tumor that is a mec one mutation that is exquisitely addicted to a MEK inhibitor, and if you knew this information going in, you'd wanna put this patient with the MEC one mutation onto the MEK inhibitor. So unfortunately, we still don't even have a trial open that would handle such a patient if we found another one, um, but these patients um, do, in fact, exist. This is the third case. It's actually probably biologically the most novel um, and also the most, uh, most interesting from a clinical perspective. And so this is a patient who presented, um, back in 2008, she presented with a um, right ureteral lesion. She was a young woman in her 40s. And so they went ahead and cut it out and thought it would be a urothelial tumor, but it turned out to be a pure small cell cancer. And so small cell cancers can come up anywhere in the this, in the body. And in the urothelial tract, about 1% of bladder and urothelial tract tumors are small cell cancers. And at least at Memorial, these patients do incredibly poorly, they essentially all die of their disease. And so she had localized disease. They thought she would recur. And so based upon absolutely no data, they gave her chemotherapy. They gave her cisplatin plus etoposide, hoping that in the adjuvant setting that would prevent recurrence. But unfortunately, within a few months, her disease came back. She now had a metastasis to the kidney, and she had retroperitoneal disease. Really no standard of care for this. Um, so they, for some reason, I, don't, I still don't know why they did it. They went ahead and they cut all this out. They did a, a nephrectomy and a lymph node dissection. And she was briefly NED, but within a few months, again, developed recurrent disease in the lymph nodes, and now had bone myths. And so this is a pretty grim you know, story in a young woman. Um, so they went ahead and referred her to our phase one clinic. And for no particular reason, She was selected to go on this study. It's an AstraZeneca-sponsored study of irinotecan plus a CHECK1-2 inhibitor um, AZD7762. And this was such a negative study that midway through the study, they just killed the program. And so they were seeing some cardiac toxicity, which they thought was maybe not on target, but was drug-related. And they weren't seeing really much activity, so AstraZeneca just ended the program despite the fact that this woman had a complete response to therapy. So she was a CR, but again, more broadly, they weren't seeing responses, so they killed the program. And she was a CR here, and since they killed the program, we had to stop the AstraZeneca drug. And they continued her for a few more months on the urinal can, kind of, again, like the Everlymus case, a little too nervous to stop it, thinking her cancer would come right back. But you know, after X number of months of urinal can, you kind of have to stop it you know, due to cumulative... Side effects, so they went ahead and stopped it, and that was almost three years ago. And so she's probably cured, okay? So this is a woman with metastatic small cell cancer to bone and lymph nodes and kidney who was cured on a phase one study, which was, the program was killed by the drug company. So again, for this woman, it was the right drug, but she's obviously doesn't have something that's that common that you could see that single um, broadly in an unselected population. So we went went ahead and we sequenced her whole genome. This is her circus plot here. A Lot more structural variations um, in this tumor than the Everolimus case, which is over here on the left side. A lot more translocations, a lot more copy number aberrations, none of which we thought were functional. But what she did have was three genes that were mutated that we thought were very interesting. Um, One of them was p53, which was actually the hypothesis going into the study. The hypothesis being that if you had disrupted the p53 checkpoint and then inhibit check one, that that's gonna synergize with chemo. So the fact that she was p53 mutant was at least, you know, reassuring to us that maybe we, you know, we'll find something interesting. But it didn't seem to be enough because there were many other patients on the study who had p53 mutations who didn't respond. But she had two other mutations. She had a mutation here in ATR, which we thought was very interesting, and she had a mutation here in RAD50. And I really can't go through all the things that we go through informatically to try to sort through which of these mutations are probably likely important. But just very quickly, if you look at the RAD50 mutation, and you look at its evolutionary conservation, which is one of the sort of tests we use as to whether something could be potentially interesting, this. Area of RAT50, which is called the D loop, is actually conserved all the way back through yeast and even in some bacteria. And you only see differences if you go back to different bacteria. Um, but, you know, in mouse and human and Drosophila, yeast evolutionarily conserved throughout, suggesting that mutation of this area could have functionality. Whereas, if you look at this ATR mutation, it's not in any known domain. And there's really no conservation of this site, even you know uh, in mice versus human or Drosophila. Um So that really pointed as, uh, to this rad fifty mutation as being something very interesting, but it's a missense mutation. Um, this requires some sort of functional validation to really you know know what this means. Um, so what we did is we took advantage of the fact that this was um, conserved in yeast to actually do a cross species validation using yeast of what the functionality of of this mutation is. So this is just showing, here's the mutation, and it's actually located in the interaction um, domain um, between RAT50 and uh, a protein called MRE11, which along with uh, one other protein called MBN, uh, makes up the MRE11 complex, which is one of the checkpoint um, complexes along with um, things like CHECK1, um, as well as P53. So we went in and we knocked this into haploid yeast and then treated those yeast with um, camptothecin, which is an analog of, of irinotecan. And what you see is that when you have this, this mutation, you see the numbers changed a little bit because this is the yeast, the yeast analog. Um, this mutation causes about a 25-fold sensitization to the chemotherapy when you have this um, RAD50 mutation in the yeast. So that was kind of interesting that there was some sensitization, but didn't really seem to explain the cure that we saw in this patient, which seemed to be uh, quite an outlier phenotype. But again, we really thought we were on the right track, because if you take this mutation and you knock it into diploid yeast, either as a heterozygous or as a homozygous, you see the sensitization in the homozygous setting, but you see no, activation, no sensitization um, if this is over a wild type allele. But if you look at the patient's genetics, the patient not only had the mutation, but they had loss of heterozygosity. Um, of the wild type allele and RAD50 was expressed at very low levels um, in this patient's tumor. So again, the genetics were seemingly pointing us to the fact that this RAD50 mutation um, was very important. This is really the key slide. So remember this patient didn't simply get chemotherapy in, in the setting of having this RAD50 mutation, they also got a check inhibitor. And so in an effort to model that, that dual sensitization um, with the combination, we went ahead and generated yeast that not only had the mutation, but also had the mutation in the setting of a mec one deletion, which is the ATR um, equivalent in yeast. And what you see here is that when you have the mutation alone, you see this small amount of sensitization. But if you have the mutation in the context of ATR check 1 inhibition, you see this incredible synthetic lethal response. So it turned out that this patient, having this RAD50 and P53 mutations, couldn't model the P53 in yeast because it's not there. was really the ideal patient for this combination. And they just randomly ended up on this therapy, not for some rational um, reason. But if we could find other patients with similar RAD50 mutations, maybe we already have a drug on the shelf ready to go for these patients if we can find a way to do those type of clinical trials. The other thing I would point out about this patient is we can now do clonality analysis and ask the question, are these mutations that we're finding present in just the subpopulation of patients um, cancer cells or in all of the cancer cells, because you can imagine, if you've got a sensitizing mutation, it's only in some of the cancer cells, you're probably gonna rapidly select out the cells um, that are resistant, and notably, both the P53 mutation and the ATR mutation, at least mathematically, are predicted to be present in every single one of these um, patients' cancer cells. And you say, well, why are they there? It is possible, and there is data on this in the literature, that maybe rat 50 alterations can actually contribute to tumorigenesis, by leading to genomic um, instability. So maybe it is a very early hit, and maybe every single patient, every single cell in the patient's body, a cancer cell has this mutation, and maybe that's why we were able to cure that patient, because there was this lack of subclonality. And that actually is not unprecedented. This is a paper from um, the group at Dana-Farber and the Broad by Catherine Wu in CLL, um, showing that the duration of response to standard treatment, standard chemotherapy, um, actually correlates with the degree of clonality within the patient's tumor at the time of pretreatment. And again, the hypothesis just being, if you have a very heterogeneous tumor with lots of subclones, maybe there's already pre-existing resistant cells that quickly grow out when you give um, the treatment. So you're gonna probably be hearing a lot about this clonality concept over the coming years. And for many of our favorite mutations, things like EGFR and BRAF, maybe some of these responders are just cases where the tumor does doesn't have universal um, you know, uh, expression um, of the mutant allele that you're targeting. So, essentially going forward, this is the paradigm. Um, we did an unselected clinical trial. In this case, Everolimus was the first example. Um, we take some of these outlier cases. We do genomics on them to figure out why they're unique. We then go back to the lab to sort of validate that biology if it's not already obvious, like the MEC1 case. Um, then we need a, an assay that will allow us to find these patients prospectively. So we can do an iterative study where we restrict eligibility of that study to patients who have that particular mutation. And if I I was sending this to an NIH study section, the word iterative is very negative um, because it's derivative and not novel. Um, But these are the type of studies we really need to do in the short term um, to test a lot of these hypotheses that we've generated in the lab. So how are we gonna do those um, clinical trials? So I'm gonna shift gears a little bit um, during the second half of the talk and really just talk about the strategies that we're we're pursuing to try to do these molecularly driven clinical studies that that, that are being suggested by our our laboratory data. Um, So the first type of study is called a genotyping study, Um, and usually these are disease-based, and and so you take a tumor like lung cancer, and you have an assay, and you you essentially screen all the patients in your population um, with that genotyping assay, and then based upon what type of mutation they have, you either um, you know, allot them to a particular treatment arm, or you could do this in a sort of a, a, an adaptive fashion, um, using an adaptive randomization design. And this is really, I, I think, best shown um, by the, the, the study that Roy Herbst did when he was at MD Anderson called the Battle Study. And he criticized this study significantly, um, but, but it, at least it was an effort that was reasonable at the time to try to do this molecularly driven um, type of clinical study. And so what they were doing is they were doing new biopsies on patients. They were looking at EGFR for mutation and copy number, also analyzing BRAF and KRAS, and, um, as well as VEGF and, and uh, RXR and, and, and cyclin D1 levels. And then actually doing an adaptive randomization within this study um, to having patients either receive arlotinib uh, or Vandetinib or serafinib um, or this combination. And there are a lot of problems with this study, um, just to mention a few of them. It's very hard to put together this type of study, um, because oftentimes the drugs you have in the study are not from the same drug company. So you end up having to negotiate with multiple companies, you know, you've know, you got this gigantic study. You're trying to get it through your IRB. And by the time you, you get all those negotiations through, it's possible that some of these drugs are no longer considered best in class. And actually, by the time Roy had actually opened up the study, we already knew serafinib was a terrible inhibitor for RAF inhibitors. We had already moved on to the MEK inhibitor. And actually, by the time he opened up BATTLE2, um, he put the MEK inhibitor in there, and we'd already moved on to the RAF inhibitor. So he, he was never able to be on the cutting edge of what the best available. Um, compounds really were at the time. Another problem is is that if you use an adaptive randomization design, and, and we're not big fans at Memorial of the adaptive randomization design, but they love this down in Houston. Um, I, I, I don't see anyone who actually sees patients who would like this design, but um, it actually can become unethical during the course of the study to, adapt, to, to randomize some of the patients. And that actually happened. During the battle study. So, other people like William Powell um, at Memorial and later Vanderbilt or, or the people up at, 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 at Dana-Farber were publishing that, that, that patients with EGFR inhibitors were having a 70 to 80 percent response to erlotinib. And can you ma- be, imagine being a patient who gets enrolled on this study, they got lung cancer, they find an EGFR mutation, and then they want to randomize you to serafinib? Um, you know, that's just, just not going to fly um, when other institutions have already published. Um, that that's not a good idea. So th- this is again the problem. These studies are not happening in a vacuum. Other data is coming out, and people may not agree to that to that randomization. And then finally, and actually this is where I was coming from the BRAF um, sort of uh, stance is that sometimes these, these mutations are rare in the population. In the case of lung cancer, um, BRAF is only found V600E in about 0.8 to 1% of patients. And so if you put 100 patients onto this basket study, I mean this uh, this battle study. Um, maybe one of them, maybe none, maybe two of them have BRAF mutations. And so you're never even gonna get enough patients, let alone randomize them to different arms with a BRAF mutation to really test, you know, does seraphinib work in patients um, with BRAF mutations? So there's a lot of flaws to this study. Despite all of these flaws, um, this is essentially the design of the NCI Match Trial, which hopefully will die of its own death because it's such a bad trial. But but it still is going ahead um, at this point. It's still probably six months or a year away. Um, but but is essentially this trial on a on a much larger scale. Um, actually, it's even worse because it's not even disease focused. It's on any cancer, and so they just don't have power to really answer any questions. Um, so what's the alternative? And and really, what we've been pushing. Um, are these so-called basket studies. And so really the main conceptual difference between a molecular allocation study and a basket study is that instead of focusing on your cancer, you're focusing on your mutation. And so this is really the design of the BRAF basket study. So if you have a BRAF B600E mutation, it doesn't matter what kind of cancer you have, you can go on this study, as long as you don't have melanoma. And the reason you don't go on if you have melanoma is the drug's approved in melanoma, so you don't need to go on this study. And really, all it is statistically is you take all these patients, you put them in the same study, and then from a statistical perspective, it's really just a bunch of parallel phase two studies. Um, so you do 15 patients with colorectal cancer, 15 patients with lung cancer, breast cancer, et cetera. You always have, always have an other arm, because you never know who's actually going to show up. And there might be some, some cancers that are so rare, you're never even going to find 15 of them. But you know maybe if you have eight of them and they all respond, the FDA would, would start letting you uh, you know use that drug um, in that setting. So we always have an other arm um, as well. And so you know, this really can work. This is actually the first patient at Memorial with a BRAF V600E mutation in lung cancer who was put on Debrafinib in this case. And this patient's had a CR almost two years now um, to dabrafinib um, with this V600E mutation. So again, if I'm this patient, do I want to be randomized to serafinib on some study, or do I just want to go on the RAF inhibitor and see if it's going to work? Now, if you put 30 patients on with the BRAF inhibitor, Um, and none of them respond, then you got to say, okay, why didn't they respond and move on um, to something else? And that actually is what happened in colorectal cancer. The response of colorectal cancer patients with the same BRAF mutation um, is only about 2 to 5%. Um, And we've actually figured out why that's the case. And actually, within the BASKET study, amended the colorectal arm to allow for co-treatment with um, benurafenib as well as cetuximab. And actually, the first patient we put on the combination had a complete response. And our overall response rate with that combination is about 60%. This is, uh, I really think the basket concept helps most with rare cancers. This is a patient, um, which I wouldn't have known the name of this syndrome until this trial, but um, with what's called Erdheim-Chester disease. And so this is non-Langerhans histiocytosis. And these patients get. Uh, a proliferative disease. Initially, they weren't even sure this was a cancer, where you get an immune infiltrate in different uh, you know, body tissues. Um, this patient had brain disease, okay? And about 50% of these patients have V600E BRAF mutations. And so there's no way that, that Um, Roche would have ever agreed to do a study in Erdheim-Chester disease. Um, But because the basket study was open and we have the other arm, this patient went ahead and was enrolled on the study in the other arm, and this patient's had a complete response. This patient was in a wheelchair, has actually a YouTube video online about this, um, was in a wheelchair um, and is walking now, and 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 it's just one of those miraculous type of responses. And it's not surprising. Again, BRAF B600E, give a BRAF inhibitor. Um, maybe there's actually not even that much genomic complexity in a disease like this um, that you would see this type of, of complete response. Um, there's actually an Erdheim-Chester histiocytosis um, advocacy group, and so you know we can keep these secret if we want to, but but the patients are posting these things on YouTube and uh, and YouTube as well as Facebook. Um, so we've had a flood. We've actually put 11 patients with histiocytosis and Memorial alone onto this basket study. This is another patient where actually her disease is this immune infiltrate into the skin, and you can see she's had this complete response, which is pathologically confirmed um, after four months on the drug. So what are really the advantages of the, this approach? It, it really allows testing of a biologic hypothesis. I run a lab. I identify some predictors of, of, of sensitivity or resistance. And I want to ask that question. If you've got a BRAF mutation in lung cancer, do you respond to the RAF inhibitor? This is really the most efficient way to do that. Again, we're not, the screening's not part of the study. You find the mutations however you want to find the mutations. Once they have the mutation, they can go on the study. Um, and it really allows you to let the whole world screen for the mutations you want, and then have them funnel into this um, particular study design. Because it's a collection of uh, disease-specific cohorts, you can actually study things like lineage or commutation patterns. So what we found is that there's incredible uh, a range of response rates with different diseases. Not everyone with a BRAC mutation responds. In histiocytosis, it's been essentially 100% response rate. In melanoma, it's about an 80% response rate. In lung cancer, it's about a 60% response rate. In colon cancer, it's about a, a 0% response rate. And so different diseases either have different lineage factors, stromal factors, or maybe different commutation pa- patterns that make some of them sensitive um, to single-agent treatment, others resistant. But we can study that in the context of this trial, because we can put 15 patients on, collect their tumors, see if it's the commutation patterns, and then maybe move on to combinations like we did in colorectal cancer, if that seems um, promising. So what are the criticisms um, from clinicians, companies, regulators, um, one of them has been, you fail to identify, identify patients who potentially respond but lack the biomarker. I, I, I agree, um, that's true. Um, some patients could respond to the MEK inhibitor who don't have mec one mutations, but that's a different question. and doesn't have to be answered within the context of this clinical trial, but this has actually been probably the reason that most companies have refused to do the study. They, they don't wanna um, sort of narrow the, the potential market for their drug until they know they have to based upon a dictation from the FDA or, or, or from clinical investigators. I would also say um, getting multiple disease teams to work together um, has really been harder than I thought. And, and really, what it comes down to is, you know, we open up the basket study, and you know, each disease wants to do their own study. Breast wants to have their own breast study. Um, lung wants to have their own lung study. colon wants to have their own colon study, and you know there 's one hundred and fifty different histologic subtypes and so for the rare cancers they 're happy about the basket because they know they 'd never get any study without it. but you know breast usually goes off on their own direction, lung on their own direction, and start fighting among themselves as to who 's going to be the pi of the study and they don 't want to be part of the basket at all because none of the breast people are the pi and so um, this has been incredibly challenging and You know, at least from me, I think we can get around this by, you know, if I go back to the slide here, by not publishing one gigantic paper, but by publishing different papers with each disease. But um, the way actually the BRAP paper is going to be published is as one gigantic paper. I think, unfortunately, that is the the downside of that is that one person is going to be the first author, one person is going to be the last author, and, and probably they've had less buy in from some of the diseases um, for that that reason. And so I'm gonna at least mention the neuratinib study in a few minutes. We're gonna try to publish it the other way as as multiple papers to at least get around that issue. And then finally, um, identifying the patients really remains a challenge. Um, Most patients, especially with rare tumors, are not profiled at all. And so how are you gonna find those mutations? Who's gonna pay for that? And at least it's my belief um, that you wanna do opposite of what the MATCH study is doing. You want to separate the screening protocol where you're looking for the mutations from the therapeutic protocol where you're treating them. So you want to find a mutation and then put them onto whatever the best available study is. And if you try to put those studies together, what happens is, again, it takes a long time to negotiate those different um, clinical trials you end up with a lot of drugs that are you know, inferior on those um, type of study designs. And I think that's the problem, um, another problem with the math study. So what are the drug targets that we can go at? I'm not going to go through this slide in detail, but just say that um, we've at least been coming up with different levels of evidence as to whether um, there's at least uh, some reasonable certainty that this could work. Um, and so level one evidence is that the genotype-phenotype correlation is already proven. This is standard of care. This is something like BRAP V600E in melanoma, or L858R EGFR in lung cancer. Um, but there's other situations where there's some data, but, but less so. And, and level two could, for example, could be BRAF in other tumor types other than melanoma. And you can see I've already said it doesn't always work. It works sometimes, doesn't always work. L858R EGFR will be similar. If you find a mutation in EGFR and it's not a lung cancer, maybe it doesn't work because maybe the co-mutation pattern um, makes those patients resistant. But it just needs to be tested. So there's a lower level of evidence. This, this is the type of thing we'd love to do a clinical trial on. Level three might be some retrospective evidence like my TSC1 mutations. We'd love to run a basket where if you have a TSC1 mutation, you get tested with everolimus. Maybe some types of tumors respond better than others in that context. Um, level four might be just lab-based evidence without any clinical um, you know, data. And level five is really everything else somatic and everything else epigenetic. We just really um, don't have good at levels of evidence um, for those cases. So an example that really jumped out to us is something that would really be ideal for a basket study was HER2. So this is a protein where it's already a drug target, established in some cancers, and this is really an analysis of the frequency of HER2 amplification and mutations across cancer types. And this is an old slide put together by Nikki Schultz um, on about 7,000 patients. And not surprisingly, um, breast and stomach are the cancers where HER2 is uh, most frequently amplified. And actually, that's where Herceptin is FDA approved already but there's a long tail on this curve. Things like bladder and endometrial where there's HER2 amplification where we don't use HER2 inhibitors and we really even in most cases have never even tested HER2 inhibitors in that context. And there's not only amplification, this is mutation um, where it's actually most common in bladder but there's a number of tumors where about one to 3% of cancers in that context have HER2 mutations, and so this is the type of thing that really cries out um, for a basket study because you could capture all of these patients in one study, um, and it doesn't make sense to open up multiple studies because these things are rare um, in these disease um, types. And you know I I just think we've we've been dropping the ball on this. This is actually a patient who we analyzed retrospectively with bladder cancer who has incredibly high HER2 amplification. Um, This patient, in fact, died of her bladder cancer without ever seeing a HER2 inhibitor. And the level of amplification she has um, is similar to what you see in breast cancers. She has no other significant um, amplicons um, within the assay. And she also has no other clear driver mutations. And so maybe she, she, she could have responded. And I think there's something wrong with our system if it hasn't really let us test these very obvious hypotheses um, in, a, in, a, in a rational way. These, this is just showing hot spots for these HER2 mutations. Um, they, they cluster in the kinase domain. But there's also extracellular domain mutations. And again, this is one of my big criticisms with the MATS trial, in that they've settled on this Amplseq ion torrent panel, which many institutions use, which in fact don't detect the most common HER2 mutation um, in patients with cancer. So you've got a platform, it's incredibly suboptimal because it misses the most common mutation in a gene for which we really may see a very strong genotype to phenotype correlation. But we, we, we've been finding these patients. This is a foundation medicine test. Probably foundation was ahead of everybody else in their ability to find these patients. Here's a patient with an S310F, extracellular domain HER2 mutation with bladder cancer. Um, are these patients rare? This patient actually was the next week. Again, same S310F mutation in bladder cancer. Um, but you can see the co-mutation patterns are completely different among these two patients. And so maybe neither of them respond because you need combinations. Maybe this patient responds, but this patient doesn't because the co-mutation in PIK3CA makes them resistant. I don't really know, but you have to start somewhere by testing the single agent in a series of patients with these mutations to see if there's, if they're gonna respond. So we went ahead and, and we're fortunate in that uh, Puma, which is a biotech company, um, allowed us to really do a traditional basket study um, for the HER2 concept. So we set up this study, it has five arms defined, and has an other arm. What you see missing on this um, is breast and lung um, because there were competing breast and lung studies, so those patients go into the other arm. But we've got a bladder arm, a colon arm, an endometrial arm, a gastric arm, and an ovarian arm. And really, the end point is just to look for an overall response um, after a couple couple months. And we've already seen major responses on this trial. This is a patient with an ERPR positive, HER2 non-amplified, HER2 mutant, with a V77L um, breast cancer mutation. So if you go back to this slide, um, that's right here, so not even one of the more common ones, but this is a, an activating mutation. Um, this is that patient's PET scan pretreatment, um, and uh, just showing the coronal views, and then this is eight weeks into therapy showing a near complete response. At the second uh, PET state, uh, scanning stage at four months, this patient now has a complete response. So, Uh, Again, these seem to be obvious low-hanging fruit. Um, Really, it's a logistical problem that prevents us from doing these kinds of studies. We put other patients onto the study, and some have not responded. So again, why are some responding? Why are others not responding? We just need a large number of patients treated with the drug so we can sort that out. And why open up 37 different studies when you could just accomplish this with one um, clinical study? We also noticed as we were doing the, the bladder TCGA that these HER2 mutations were essentially mutually exclusive with HER3 mutations, as well as with um, EGFR amplification. And these HER3 mutations, there are hotspot ones, this is an extracellular domain mutation. Remember, HER3 is kinase dead, and so the way these HER3 mutations do um, work is they function by inducing dimer formation um, with HER2, and at least in preclinical models, these dimers are very sensitive to drugs like neratinib. So we actually amended the study um, just recently to add an arm, actually just one arm. We, we didn't even divide it by diseases at this point, um, where if you have a HER3 mutation, you go on to the study. And we will ask, do these HER3 mutations correlate with response to, erlotinib, I mean, to uh, neratinib? And did we see any any pattern as a function of disease type? Um, we haven't put a patient on because we just, just opened um, that arm. We also amended it to add uh, an arm. Where if you have an extracellular EGFR mutation, um, you can go on neratinib, and that was based on some data from Ingo Mellinghoff showing that these extracellular domain mutations of EGFR, which essentially do dimer formation, are more sensitive to neratinib than they are to erlotinib. Um, so it seemed like a reasonable hypothesis, and we were able to just sort of test that quickly um, by putting um, that arm onto the study. So again. This basket study is trying to answer this question of, we found some interesting uh, hypotheses, either retrospectively or in the lab, um, can we test them officially in, in the clinic? But the hurdle still remains, how are you gonna find the patients? And so how are we gonna do it at Memorial? Just to mention over the last five minutes, um, we're gonna use an assay very similar to what Foundation Medicine is doing, and this has now gone live. Um, so we call this assay integrated mutation profiling of activated uh, cancer targets or impact. Um, and so this was created by Mike Berger um, at the institution and will be run in our CLIA um, lab. And so it's a very, fairly simple assay. Um, you take tumor drive DNA, you barcode samples so you can pool them together as either 24 or 48 barcoded samples. Um, you also create biotinylated baits that allow you to capture certain parts of the genome and, and sequence them selectively. And then you use um, beads to, to pull down these biotinylated baits that hybridize um, with the exons that you're interested in in the tumor DNA. You then sequence that and then um, do the analysis. And so there's 341 cancer genes um, in our panel. Um, how did we come up with 341 genes? Um, It really was uh, just sitting down and doing a little bit of the math, um, saying that we wanted to be able to run about 10,000 samples a year. We've got three high seeks. We want 500 to 1,000x coverage. And so we could probably do about 350 genes. And so that's really where it came from. And we needed to co- keep the cost below a certain level um, so that we could do this broadly um, at the institution. We also wanted to just have more than foundation had so that patients you know, didn't have our assay for 150 and then repeated a foundation when there really were probably no genes um, that were different in the assays that probably are actionable. But you can imagine people um, might have done that. But but it's not completely overlapping with the genes that foundation um, medicine is running. And so this is just what some of the raw data looks like um, in IGV. This is the EGFR gene. These are exons. And these are the reads. And so you can see um, the assay pulls down preferentially um, the reads that are covering your, your exons of interest. And so it allows you to spend your sequencing dollars in the places of the genome that are most important at this point. Again, the downside of any capture-based assay like this is there may be important genes that are not in your assay, and, and you will by definition um, miss those. Okay. So we actually did a validation on 782 samples. There was only one mutation that was missed. It was actually um, a 12-base pair tandem duplication in a kit. It's actually there, but hard to detect bioinformatically. We also picked up things that had been missed by our sequinome assay, like this KRAS Q61K mutation, simply because KRAS Q61K wasn't in the sequinome assay, and thus not um, detected. You can detect copy number um, really simply the way this is done is you're just pretty much counting the number of reads in the tumor versus the normal. And if there's an excess of reads in the tumor, um, it's amplified. If there's a deficiency of reads, um, it's deleted. And you really normalize this not just on the patient's normal, but on a set of pooled normals, which accounts for the different efficacy of of, of the different capture-based probes. So we're doing a genotyping initiative, um, and the reason that this initiative is required um, is that standard of care genotyping is only a reality in a small number of cancers. So um, every patient with lung cancer gets genotyped, every patient with colorectal melanoma, maybe just tumors, some thyroid cancers. At least with metastatic disease, it's standard of care to profile these patients. But for most cancers, breast cancer, um, prostate cancer, bladder cancer, endometrial cancer. We don't do any standard of care profiling. And so to be able to do that, um, we didn't think we could charge the patients for this. We needed to do it um, as an institutional expense. And we also needed to write a clinical trial. So we wrote a new clinical trial that allows us to do research non-billable profiling broadly in patients and report that data into the clinical chart. Um, notably, in that trial, we can also do retrospective whole genome and whole exome for discovery later, and then try to action that stuff back into the CLIA environment um, by validating, validating it into, in a CLIA setting. And so really, this is my last slide, um, really the way we're going to do this is we're going to do about the first 50 or 100 patients with each cancer type for free. Um, and then I am trying to work with each of the disease teams to find additional money um, to do other patients. So, if we did the first 50 free, and that really was driving patients to clinical trials, we need to find a way to continue that. Um, if we did 50 for free and, and wasn't really helpful because we either didn't find anything uh, of use, or maybe the things we found are not druggable, then maybe it's not uh, a good use of institutional funds. But we're going to at least do a series of uh, uh, several thousand patients for free. Some cancers are, uh, will be billable, and we'll, we'll bill for them. Um, colon, melanoma, you know, lung cancer. Um, but again, we're, our goal is to try, the goal I've been given uh, to try to accomplish is to really do every patient with metastatic disease, which is about 10,000 patients um, a year within the Sloan-Kettering um, network. So we're going to try to pull that off because we see that as driving patients um, to these genotype-directed therapies. So just to give a couple acknowledgements, acknowledgments, um, I just want to acknowledge the, the funding in large part came from a, a charity called Cycle for Survival. And Um, Really, the whole genome outlier analysis was partially inspired by this woman, Jennifer Lynn Goodwin, Goodwin, who unfortunately died of of her sarcoma um, and really inspired this for two reasons. One is that she was really an exceptional person and was able to show that a single person you know, starting this fundraiser has been able to make a huge impact. Um, The Cycle for Survival event this year raised $20 million. It's only the seventh year of this fundraiser, and so it's gone from essentially nothing to $20 million in seven years. Um, and so this, this concept that one person could make a difference really gave us this thought that if we could take these outlier cases that were uniquely sensitive to the drugs, by analyzing those patients, we could find that biomarker that could be applicable to a broader population of patients. I also think that you know the focus of this fundraiser is on rare cancers, and I think that we can learn a lot from studying these rare cancers. Sometimes we will see dramatic responses in some of these rare tumors where the genetics are less complicated and then use those lessons, those biologic lessons, um, more broadly in the more common tumors like breast um, and colon. And this is always, uh, you know, a big collaboration between the lab and the clinic. This is the building I work in, the Zuckerman building. And there's many, many laboratory collaborators. I would just mention Gopa, who's the initially was a clinical fellow who worked on this and now a junior faculty member. Um, Barry Taylor and Nikki Schultz, who worked with me on the bioinformatics. Mike, who developed the assay. And then just a lot of my clinical colleagues just at least mentioned um, Hikmat al You really need a good pathologist to do any of this work. Um, and then Dean Bajoran and Bertie Bachner and many of the clinicians and others um, who I can't mention um, who really contributed um, to providing samples or, or annotated clinical, clinical data. Um, so I'm happy to answer any questions. And thanks again for the invitation. It, yeah. You mentioned that you had um, set, different mutations along with the mutation that you think is targetable, but some of those mutations
0: also be targetable. How do you make that decision?
1: I think the problem that we're going to have is that we're all pretty smart, and we can't overthink it in the clinic. Um, so, you know, if I go back to this this profile in, in bladder cancer, um, you know, the patient has clearly a, a kinase domain activating PIK3CA mutation. So you say to yourself. You know, Why don't we give them a HER2 inhibitor plus a PIK3CA mutate inhibitor? This patient, in fact, has an NF2 alteration. So why not the HER2 inhibitor with an mTOR inhibitor? Uh, it sounds great on paper I and mean, conceptually, but we don't even know if you can safely give those drugs together. And there really isn't any evidence right now that this single agent wouldn't work. And you just you have to do things stepwise in the clinic, um, or you can hurt people. I mean, you could try to give this as a cocktail um, without anyone else having gotten it, and the patient could have such toxicity they die from the cocktail. So you know, you would say, well, some patients with metastatic disease might want to take that risk. I don't think it's the way you do it. You have to just start with a single agent, and then rationally do combinations and build on them. And for many of those combinations, you're going to have to do a dose escalation phase one um, component. And patients are not going to be thrilled to have to be on a low dose of the dose escalation component. But you know, sometimes there is the greater good concept that we just have to stepwise do these these studies um, the right way. So I think as clinicians, we're going to see these you know intriguing combination possibilities and want to do something with that. But you got to do the single agent first.
0: Does the basket study model affect the ability <coughs> of the drug treat, the treatment schedule to be moved into further phases for commercial
1: development? Well, I, I think we were talking earlier about uh, dose and schedule. I, I think that oftentimes the, the dose that's right for the single agent is not right for the combination. That, that pulsatile high dose with combinations might be a much better way to go. Um, you know, it's kind of irrelevant to the basket study in a, in a concept. Way, but um, you know, the basket study doesn't dictate the dose and schedule, it just dictates who goes on the study. Um, But I think, you know, just to answer your question, maybe not even answer it, but I think we should be experimenting with alternative doses and schedules. But the basket study could let you do that. I mean, if, if you've got patients with BRAF mutant colon, for example, and the first 15 didn't respond with the single agent. You could then either take another inhibitor. I mean, there's three ways you could go. You could say, well, the inhibitor's not a great inhibitor. Let's get a different inhibitor. But if the inhibitor's working in other BRAF mutant contexts, maybe that's not the answer. You could say, let's do combinations, which is the way we went with colorectal. Um, Or you could say, let's try a different schedule and enroll another 15 patients. Um, You know, look, I think that if you had BRAF colon, there aren't that many other options. You know, even with the 5% response rate, we had people interested in, in going on those studies
0: if uh, money was no object and uh, the bioinformatics was was here, would you see an advantage to a whole genome or whole exome sequencing? Seems to be a finite or select few uh, genes that seem to be useful in this rush into the broader sequencing may be unnecessary. Would-
1: well, I just... I- I mean, just to give you the, the, the cost a little bit. So I, if money's not issue, I, you have to say money and time are an issue here. Um, and even what does this stuff mean? Um, so the first whole genome we did, that Everolimus case, that cost me $20,000 um, to do the tumor normal pair. It was $10,000 a genome. And actually, we wouldn't consider that to be adequate sequencing today. It's not even, it's like three years later, and it's already completely obsolete. Um, But we did 40x coverage, which is completely inadequate. Now you want to be 100, 150x. And actually, for the capture-based assays, we're 500 to 1,000x. Because you don't want to miss like a BRAF mutation. So if you're doing 40x, you're sometimes just not going to cover BRAF V600E well, and you'll miss that. So that's really the trade-off. You'd rather have less genes and deeper coverage right now than more genes and less deep coverage. So that's one, one component. Two is, we needed frozen tumor at the time. And, and that's still mostly a requirement for whole genome sequencing. And few patients had frozen material. And one of the reasons that, that case was successful is, remember, the patient had had their surgery at Sloan-Kettering the summer prior. So it was actually fairly proximal to when they had metastatic disease. It wasn't 10 years ago. And the patient, because they were at Sloan-Kettering, we have a huge effort to try to fleece tumors at surgery. We had frozen tumors sitting around that we could do analysis on for that patient. Um, three. Um, Money does matter. We, you know, we are doing most of the profiling for free, um, and even for the patients that we're getting reimbursed for, we're not getting reimbursed for enough to cover our expenses. And so it is a money losing proposition, in large part. Um, so for melanoma, you know, the cost of this assay is probably 800 to 1,000 dollars. I'm talking about the cost to Sloan Kettering. Um, we're probably going to get reimbursed two or 300 dollars. That's what we're going to get reimbursed, and so we're going to lose money in melanoma. We actually might make money in lung. Because for melanoma right now you charge for BRAF and that's all you can charge for. For lung we can charge for BRAF, KRAS, you know, uh, EGFR, ALK, ROS, and maybe a few other things. We can actually stack those billing codes and maybe recover, you know, three thousand dollars for that patient. Um, so so that, that's completely irrational, but money does matter. And then finally, um, I think something that I've actually thought was not as much of a challenge, but but is. A, I think more important than I appreciated even six months ago, is really having the knowledge base of what the mutations mean so you can report them to the clinicians. Um, so explain to me what other lab tests do we do that the lab tells you as the doctor what to do with the information? When I get a CBC, the heme lab doesn't tell me, oh, well, the patient's uh, got a hemoglobin of 8.1. You better give him a transfusion. You know, I mean, I, I don't get that advice from the heme lab. But people seemingly expect that advice from me um, if we're doing the profiling, um, and I give them back this Foundation Medicine report, and so they say, oh, well, it's an LA58R EGFR mutation. You need to tell me what that means. You um, need to tell me if that's biologically activated. You need to tell me if that, that responds to therapy. So people like Foundation Medicine have spent millions of dollars trying to put together that, that database, and that's hard to do for 20 genes. It's hard to do for 341 genes. It's impossible to do for... 20,000 genes or let alone whole genome where you've got other structural things that are in the introns. Um, So you don't even know how to communicate that data back. So I think whole genome is just, I think it's years away. I even think exome is still, because of costs and tissue quality and input, um, is still probably three or four years away from being really feasibly done on any even moderate scale. Um, But we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah.